All right, so today's hard saying has been used by many as an excuse to explain their lost interest in Jesus. They hear this word hate that is rendered in our English translations, and it turns them away from Jesus. They view Jesus and God, therefore, as a petty person who doesn't get the love that he wants and demands it above all things. There are two issues that I want to address here before we begin to untie this knot. People like this who hear just phrases or verses in the scriptures, what they do is that they make the Bible conform to their understanding, to their interpretations, instead of conforming themselves, conforming their understanding to the Bible, just like I prayed moments ago for us. They take their understanding and their application of words, modern English words, like hate, and then they apply it to Jesus. And they say, this must be what Jesus means. And then they turn sour on Jesus. But this is what we acknowledge here at Heritage. We talk about this a lot as a church family, is that your understanding and that your experiences with modern American English words is not how Jesus often uses these words. We have to understand that most likely Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, which is kind of like a... You know, like Creole is to French, it's like a dirty French. Aramaic is kind of like a dirty Hebrew. And But then these gospel writers wrote in what was called Koine Greek, which is not used, it's not modern Greek today. It was, a, it was a Greek of the times. And then it's translated for us as English readers. Because American culture has taught you that one of your ultimate values should be self-expression, self-fulfillment, and self-gratification, you have a difficult time as the modern American hearer in listening and receiving and then acting on exhortation. We hear hard truth from the Bible, and then we fight against it. This is another thing we often talked about as church family. It's how often the word cuts, and it cuts deep into us. And why is that? It cuts deep into us because, in part, culture has conditioned you that no one can come into your life and speak truth to you, that you are your own self-governing authority. So a person hears something that challenges how they want to live or how they are currently living, and then they drop out. And we have seen this time and time again over the years together. But we acknowledge that to be a Christian means that you are a disciple. And at the very heart of this original word for disciple is where we get our English word for math. And math is hard. It is complex. There's multiple steps and things you have to memorize. And if you don't apply it correctly, the solution is wrong. To be a disciple means that you open up all of the parts of your life, that there's not one thing that is left hidden. You open up all of yourself to Jesus for his exhortation, for his encouragement, and for his challenge. So if you're okay with the part of Jesus that comes in and saves your life, that offers you eternity, that offers you grace and mercy and protection and provision now, this also means that you must equally be okay with him speaking exhortation into your life. And he does it in multiple ways. He does it through his spirits, which we've talked about. He is the convictor of our sins. He does it through his word, that the word is a sword, 
but he also does it through a church family. And therefore, we let church family into our lives to be able to help point things out to us because we are the body of Christ. Now, modern Americans don't like this. They don't like this type of cooperation. They want autonomy. They want independence. In part, we're like this because you and I have not learned from America the skills to cope and the skills to respond when we hear from someone else that we're doing something wrong, that we would be doing something that's dishonoring another person in our lives, most of all the Lord himself. But on the other hand, Christians do have this God-given desire to experience and to enjoy Jesus as their ultimate affection and ultimate authority. And that's another motif throughout my preaching that I've been trying to present to you in almost, we're wrapping up seven years together. We feel this way because God has begun and is continuing and will continue to work regeneration or the new covenant into us where he rips out that dead hard heart and puts a new heart into us. And the promise today that we're going to go to in application is that what God started in us in regeneration, in the new covenant, that God is going to finish it in us until the day of Christ Jesus, until the eschaton, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is the sign of the new covenant for God's new covenant people, the church. All right, that's where we're going today. You ready? Let's get to our proposition. This is the truth that I do pray that you would take kind of practically away from this text today, that those who follow Jesus must consider how to rightly apply the affections of their hearts. Once again, the modern American and the modern American churchgoer likes the idea of Jesus. In the early 2000s, there was all these printed t-shirts that Jesus is my homeboy. And it illustrates the fact that they really haven't read through the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse. They like the idea that God is for them and will do things for them. Like he's this genie in the bottle of the West. Modern American churchgoers see Jesus as someone that they turn to when life is hard. Which is why, for example, on 9-11, churches around our country were filled with people who were formerly agnostic or atheistic. Because in hard times, we want to turn to a higher power. Because we, in hard times, we realize how inferior and how finite we are. But today's hard saying is hard because Jesus is claiming that to be a Christian is far more than church attendance. And it's far more to praying to God when life gets hard sometimes. And this is another thing that we have tried to do for you here at Heritage, is to try to make crystal clear what Jesus says really makes a Christian and what is not a Christian. Being a Christian means that we've been given a desire by God the Father to love his Son as our highest affection. At Heritage, we affirm this, right? It is woven now into the DNA of our church, it's a part of our foundational documents. It's a part of our covenants. It's a part of our affirmations. We're never, we will never be perfect at it, but we have been given a desire to love Jesus above all as our ultimate authority. So what makes me, Tisa's husband, is that I love her. Oh, I don't know where she was. I'm like, where is she right now? She's at the computer. Is that I love her above all other earthly relationships. And what I tell her is that She's the number one above all my earthly relationships. My love for her is proven 
when I give her that highest priority. But what makes me a Christian is God's work in me to love his son above all earthly relationships. So in the ultimate sense, Jesus is ultimate and number one. But above earthly relationships, God calls me to put Tisa to be number one. Love for God is proven when I put his son above all earthly relationships, especially when what's being presented in that relationship clashes with what God asks us as those who love and follow his son. This is Jesus's goal in today's hard saying, and I know that it is hard. And Tisa's is like, there's always so much hard stuff here at Heritage. But I promise after Easter, and we take a look at my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're jumping into the Proverbs, and it'll be a nice little transition for us as a church. Or you may say it's just as hard. Jesus today is going to clarify what the affections of the heart looks like for a Christian. And then we're going to move to application so that you and I can rightly apply what it means to love Jesus above all and how to love people in a way that honors them as his image bearers. Because we're going to see today is that loving whatever person in your life with that ultimate affection puts too much burden on them. It puts too much burden on them that only the cross can actually bear. So here's today's context. In Luke 14, Jesus healed on the Sabbath again. Jesus keeps doing things that ruffles the feathers of those who are religious hypocrites. The Pharisees are in an uproar again for this. He's already told them that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, that Sabbath conforms to man and not man to Sabbath. So Jesus, in response, tells two uh, parables to challenge religious hypocrisy, and then he leaves them. But this large crowd begins to follow him, just like often happens. Like he gives them bread, and he gives them loaves and fish, and then he leaves, and they want to find him and pursue him because they want more. But he turns to this large crowd today, and he speaks our hard saying that we're going to take a look at. And it brings up the, the question of this. In a large crowd, and this has real relevance in America because many of the churches are so large. And many people in America still claim to be God-following, that they are Christians. How can you tell that a person is a genuine Christian from among a crowd? And the answer is, however untime and not today is this, is that genuine Christians, though they're not perfect at this, they have this desire to rightly apply their heart's affections, whether it's to Jesus, to their earthly relationships, or their material possessions. Okay? Let's get to our first point and go through some of these verses together, and definitely the hard saying. In point one, the call for you is to consider the challenges and the costs of following Jesus. To truly follow Jesus, a person must consider the challenges and count the costs because there are challenges and costs. It's not some of the billboards that you have seen in church history past of rainbows and sunshine and sprinkles on cupcakes and smiling families. We'll get into the smiling family a little bit more next Sunday. That is an inaccurate presentation of what the call is to follow Jesus. So the challenge is this for us. You and I have this natural disposition to love anything, to love anyone more than the one who created us and loves us perfectly. That's why we see more enthusiasm and more worship at a sporting event 
or a secular concert than we do in the church of God. Because you and I are hardwired to love anyone and anything over and above Jesus. All right, now let's get to the hard saying. Jesus says in verse 26 and 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is the cross that Jesus calls us to bear, and we have to untie this right now. This verse has turned away many casual church attenders away from Jesus. They hear the word hate, they apply their own personal experiences with hate or the cultural conditioning of this word hate, and they walk away. Just like in John 6, 66, after Jesus teaches about election, the unconditional election and the irresistible grace of God, many people who follow Jesus stop following him. Jesus says that you cannot be a Christian if you do not hate father, mother, spouse, children, siblings, and even yourself. So we have to ask, what does Jesus mean by this? Not what do we think that Jesus means by hate. What did Jesus mean by hate? And then how do we conform to that? How do we put ourselves underneath that? And then we have to ask ourselves, is Christianity truly a religion of hate? Because many people in modern American circles, in politics, on the news, on social media, believes that Christians are a religion of hate. We hate homosexuals. We hate transsexuals. We hate the left. But there are many Christians who come out of those circles. I've been reading far more and more of people who are giving their lives to these ideologies of American culture, and it burned them out. Like we sang moments ago, like we searched the world, we gave it. And they were saved from it. So Christians, we have to figure out, do Christians really hate people? And is our Lord really calling us to hate the relationships in our lives? The first thing we need to see is that verse 26 is impossible. It's impossible on our own. No one is wired to love Jesus more than the relationships in our lives. It's impossible on our own. And we can thank Adam for this, right? It is now our nature. Eve picked material things over God, and Adam picked his wife over God. And so we struggle to pick relationships and possessions over God. We're hardwired for it. This is why we say time and time again when we're doing theology together that regeneration has to precede our act of faith. God must do a work in us before we say, I've decided to follow Jesus. The only way that we can begin to think that, oh my goodness, I've had it wrong, and I want to love Jesus above all, is if his Father gives us the heart for it. Jesus is not telling you to actively hate your earthly relationships. That is not how we are going to untie this knot, because that's not what Jesus truly means. Jesus is actually telling you first, is that you don't have the ability your own autonomous, independent ability to truly love the people in your life as he intended for you to love them as his image bearers. That's the first thing we need to see. Now we have to address 
what Jesus means by hates. The Greek word for this complicates things. I have said this in all of my kindred relationships over the years because in Disciples Path, we talk about this verse and we talk about the word hate. And I try to complicate it for us before we get to the application of it. Usually when the Greek word is used for hate, that we translate as hate, it means to detest something. And I've used this illustration in the past. for It, it, it means that something is so disgusting in your mouth that you want to spit it out. Like, for me, eggplants. My mother-in-law, I think, is with the kids this morning, so she doesn't get to hear this, but you know of, of my distaste for eggplants. But this is not how Jesus is using this word. You know that words, whether it's in our culture or any culture, can have multiple meanings. Remember, Jesus calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves, right? There, even though there may be some truths in the Bible that are hard to understand when we bring them together, there is no such thing as a contradiction in God. Because if there is a contradiction, God would not be God. The Greek word, when it's used by the Greeks, not just Christians who speak Greek and write in Greek, but just by the Greeks in general, a secondary meaning for this word that's used for hate means to love less. And that is the meaning that I believe is faithful to what Jesus is saying and will help us clarify what he means by this. Therefore, verse 26 can read, If anyone comes to me and does not love parents and spouse and children and siblings and self less than they love me, then they're not a Christian. I'm glad we're in agreement. So here's what we learn. A Christian must love earthly relationships less than they love Jesus. That is why here at Heritage, and this is something that is repeated often this year so far, is that Christians are called to love the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus until the return of Jesus. That's one of the things that we're wrestling with this year. That's also why here at Heritage, and it's woven into our covenant and our affirmations, is that a Christian's aim is to love Jesus as their ultimate affection. Now, some of you may say this morning, that sounds so petty of God. That sounds so petty of Jesus to demand that we love him more than others. And some people think this. And I will say, in a sense, you are free to walk out of this place, despite what you hear today, and to continue to believe that. That God isn't God, because if this is God, then God is petty. And I don't want to follow a God who demands something like this. But if this is you today, I think you're simply confirming what I said at the opening of the preaching. That people don't have the categories, the skills, the coping strategies to respond when truth hits you. When truth challenges you, challenges your, your paradigms, and challenges your worldviews, think about it this way, if this is you. What if the Bible is true? What if God is the creator of humanity? And humanity isn't the result of primordial soup or some other theories that scientists have developed because they come with a hypothesis that there's a natural explanation to all things and not a supernatural one. What if humanity is made in the image of God? What if Jesus really is God's son who spoke the world into being, 
who took on flesh, died on a cross, and was resurrected from the dead. What if this Jesus really is coming back to destroy Satan and to destroy sin? What if Jesus is really coming back to judge the living and the dead and to destroy all injustice and hold all injustice accountable in a way that will make the Supreme Court look like they're soft? What if all of this is true? Then this necessitates that God is the author of all things and that he is the one who gets to define love and hate. It also means that what God says about love and about life is true, and we must bend to him and not him bend to us. If all of this is true, then God is not petty. God's right. He's just. If God is real and if God created us, then this means that God must know better than we do about relationships and about love. So we rightly apply the affections of the heart by loving God more and loving people less. In fact, what I want you to struggle with today and moving forward is that the best way to truly love your parents, your spouse, your children, your siblings, even yourself, is to love Jesus above all of them. That you actually love them best when you love them less. In part, here's why. The people in your life were not created in the image of God to fulfill the demands of being your ultimate affection. They weren't created for that. They fulfill a different purpose in your life. To help you understand this, I wanted to share some stanzas of a poem that John Piper wrote to one of his sons for his wedding day. He wrote this back in the 90s. One of the things I love about John is that he's not just a theologian that I've come to love since I was a teenager, but he is a literature lover. That's why he loves Tolkien and he loves Lewis and more. And he writes poems. You see a softer side of this, of this passionate theologian. So here's some snippets of what he wrote to his son poetically on his wedding day. And I believe that this begins to capture the essence of what Jesus is saying in Luke 14. That we love those in our lives best when we love them less. So here it is. He writes, And so we met in recent days and made the flood of love and praise, a counsel from a father's heart to flow within the banks of art. So here is a portion of the stream, my son, a sermon poem. It's a theme. A double rule of love that shocks, a doctrine and a paradox. If you now aim your wife to bless, then love her more and love her less. Yes, love her. Love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. Beyond this, venture not, but lest your love becomes a fool's facade. Be sure to love her less than God. It is not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall, as in humility before a likeness of your God adore. Above your best beloved on earth, the God alone who gives her worth, and she will know in second place that your great love 
is also grace. And that your high affections now are fleeing from a vow beneath these promises first made. To you by God, nor will they fade for being rooted by the stream of heaven's joy, which you esteem. And cherish more than breath and life that you may give it to your wife. One more stanza. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless. Go love her more by loving less. Right? I just can imagine a father, an earthly father, caring so much to pen this for a son on a wedding day. It's, it's glorious. It's glorious. But do you see the father's counsel here? The husband to be will love his bride best when he loves Jesus first and his bride less. Christians have been given this new heart to do this, to love Jesus above all. Therefore, earthly relationships cannot have the highest priority. High priority, high calling, yes. If you put a relationship above Jesus as your highest priority, there will be a cost. That relationship will crumble because God did not create that relationship to bear the weight of being your ultimate affection. And Jesus transitions to use two illustrations right now to help you understand this. To understand that things cannot work out if you don't consider this. Let's take a look at it. Verses 28 to 30, Jesus says, Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down, calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and he's not able to finish it, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. A person who says they love God and puts earthly relationships above Jesus is like this builder. This builder sets out to create a tower. This builder has laid the foundation, and now he has run out of supplies. This builder could not finish what he started. And we see this time and time again with modern American churchgoers, right? They start something and they do not endure to the end like Jesus promises. If you build life on anyone or anything but Jesus, you will not be able to finish this endeavor. People saw this in the tower builder, right? They saw that he didn't finish what he started. They looked at his enterprise and his engineering endeavors, and he was ridiculed for it, right? And I believe that people do the same thing with those who say that they are Christians, and then they stop. It's a ridicule not to the person in American culture, but to God himself. That person is actually celebrated. You woke up. You woke up out of your stupor. You realized that was a fairy tale or that was just restrictions of just conservative religious life and you're free from it now. Now you can actually live that you've let go of the bonds of Christianity. They'll think that your hypocrisy proves that God doesn't exist. 
Now, here's Jesus' second illustration. Verses 31 and 32, he says, okay, so what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. A person who gives the appearance of following Jesus is like a king who does not plan for war. This king does not sit down to create a plan to see if he could win the battle. And when the battle arrives, the king finds out he doesn't have the resources, that he is outnumbered. As if there's never been a war or a battle in human history where 10,000 cannot overcome 20,000. The king feels he has no choice than to surrender. Jesus tells us that those who give the appearance that they are Christians but do not love him above all is like this king. As a king should consult with his most trusted advisors before battle, a person must rely on the church. They must rely on the church and every church that's truly out there, if they truly are a church, to clarify what it really means to be a Christian. To be able to create those boundaries, to create those lines in the sand, to show this is Christianity. And everything else that you're hearing or everything else that you're feeling is not genuine Christianity. Truly following Jesus means that you love your earthly relationships less than you love him. And this is not demeaning to the other person. This actually puts the other person in the best position to flourish. If you don't have a desire for this, or if you've never had a desire for this, I have to be crystal clear. Then perhaps you truly do not know, love, and follow Jesus. Perhaps. I cannot say definitively. But it's something you must consider. Now, in this last verse, Jesus applies all of this then to wealth. Let's take a look at it in verse 33. He says, so then, here's his conclusion. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Now, let's finish untying this knot. Jesus is not calling Christians to a vow of poverty. Just as Jesus is not calling Christians to hate people. The same principles that resolves hate your father, mother, sister, brother is the same principle by which we untie this knot. He's not saying the Christian life is a vow of poverty. Jesus does say, though, the difficulties of the rich, and he illustrates that, right? How difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's difficulty, but it's not saying to be a Christian means a life of poverty. What Jesus is doing here, like relationships, that Jesus is calling those who follow him to love him more than wealth. And once again, if you have no desire for this, if you've never had a desire for this, then this is proof that as of right now today, that perhaps God has not started his heart work of the new covenant in you. Now, here's where the waters get muddied a little bit. This is actually one of the main attractional tools that American churches use to get people to enter their doors. American churches try to attract people to church 
with the hopes of using Christianity to make you a better spouse, to make you a better parent, to make you a better steward of your finances, to make you a better friend. They seek to attract non-Christians to come to church by teaching just biblical principles about wealth and about marriage and about family and how to act in the workplace. But this is not Christianity. Christianity isn't about using Jesus and the Bible to be a better version of yourself. That's not Christianity. That's self-improvement. And Jesus does have harsh words for self-improvement because, as we've discussed, if your righteousness, therefore, does not exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We've struggled through that hard saying already. God's work in us isn't just to make us a better version of ourselves. God's work in us is to see that our hearts are hard and dead for Jesus. That's God's work in us. God's work in us is to give us new hearts, not just an improved heart, a new heart, so that we can love Jesus as we should, above all, and to love relationships and wealth less. Think about it this way. Do you want a spouse who will love their parents more than you? I've got no visceral reaction yet. I'll keep going then. Do you want a spouse that will put his or her friends before you? Okay, now we're starting to get some stuff. Do you want, oh, this is a tough one. Do you want a spouse who will one day put their children before you? Do you want a spouse who will put money and their career before you? It's a resounding no, right? But here's the thing. You want your spouse to put you first above all earthly relationships and all earthly pursuits because it affirms what the Bible is saying. You're made in the image of God. You feel this way because you're his image bearer. You reflect something to the world that is true of God. And what is true of God is that the best way to express our affections is to give it to God first. That's why you feel this way. That's why you feel that jealousy that you feel. Because it's echoing Jesus on the cross. Jesus calls himself the bridegroom of the church. And he calls the church his bride. God created marriage to teach us something fundamental about our relationship to him. That's why I wish in our culture that we would be allowed to call Christian marriage something else. Because we teach the world in our marriages something that exists between a human being and God as creator and image bearer. Jesus wants you to love him above all because he is your bridegroom who laid down his life for you. So here's how we untie the knot. Jesus is not saying Christians must hate the relationships in their lives. And I pray that today you have a little bit more of an understanding and a foundation to respond to those in your life who like to point the finger at Christianity using this verse. Jesus is also not saying that all Christians must live a life of poverty. On the other hand, Jesus is saying that Christians have been given a new heart with a desire to rightly love him above all and everything else less. Jesus calls us to love the relationships in our lives by loving them less than we love him. 
So we ask, how can this happen in us? This is hard, right? And the answer is that God must finish what he started. God must finish his work in us called regeneration or the new covenant. And that is why we turn to application now. So the call today for our application is for you to walk out of this place, and I pray that you're convinced of this, that you will reserve your primary affections for Jesus alone. Practically, that is the best way to love parents, spouse, children, and yourself best, is to love them less. And I want to reintroduce a principle that I've often spoken to you over the years. As a Christian, you must have categories for your heart. I've encouraged you to think of, I use terms like ultimate, and I use terms like primary and secondary to help you create those categories for your heart and for your affections. We love people with our secondary affections. And among that, Tisa gets number one of that. But Jesus gets my primary affections. And sometimes as a Christian, those two things can clash. Even in a Christian marriage, it can clash. So for application, I want you to see how God was working these things, this intense love in the Apostle Paul for Jesus and also for people in his life. In Paul, we see love for Jesus and love for people are not diametrically opposed or mutually exclusive, like they clash against each other. It's actually peanut butter jelly or whatever favorite combo you have, sweet and salty. Filet and risotto. Anyway, okay. In Paul, we see loving Jesus with the primary affections and loving people with the secondary affections. Now let's go there. Let's take a look at Paul. I want you to look in this instance in the opening of his letter to the Philippian church. In verses 6 through 8, you're going to see God's promise to complete his work of new covenant in you, and then how Paul was applying all of this. He writes, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. God is my witness. How I long for you all, and this is a critical phrase, with the affection of Christ Jesus. Does this sound like American culture has Christianity right? That Christianity is a hateful religion that hates people? Do we see this in the Apostle Paul? Absolutely not. We see Paul confirming God's new covenant work in him and in us, his regenerating work. God started something in him. God started something in the Christian, and God is going to finish what he started in Paul and in the Christian all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. You know what that means, right? It means the eschaton. God will work in you across life to grow your desire to love Jesus with your primary affections and the people and the things in your life with your secondary affections. Now, the call today, as you walk out of this place, 
is to reserve those primary affections for Jesus alone. So here's the thing. God did not create you, your spouse, your children, your family, your friends, your wealth, your hobbies, to be the object of your ultimate affections. This is too much burden for them to bear, practically alone. And it's theologically not the way for heart satisfaction, soul satisfaction. When you reserve your ultimate affections for Jesus alone, you are actually free to love the people in your life in the way that honors the cross and in a way that they actually truly need. So let's look at the intense love that Paul had for the Philippians for a moment. It is clear, Paul holds the Philippian church close to his heart. Do you think they were perfect? No, Paul's talking about, he's actually, God's still going to perfect them. He's still going to do his work in them, complete what he started. They're not perfect people. And you can only imagine what first century Macedonians struggled with. This isn't Jewish culture or religious culture. Paul holds the Philippian church deep in his heart. Why? We see that this group of Christians in Macedonia was there for Paul. When he was in prison, they extended God's love, grace, and mercy to him. Tangibly, financially, emotionally. And in fact, Paul is writing this letter back to them while he is still in prison. It's clear, right? Paul longs for this church, these brothers and sisters, deeply. There's no hate in his tone. And we see that Paul longs for these brothers and sisters with the affection of Jesus, with the love of Jesus. This is critical for you and I to understand primary, secondary affections, how we rightly apply love to people. Christians love people as an overflow of the love that they first experienced in Jesus. And that's hard. I know it's hard. But this is why we reserve our primary affections for Jesus. In doing so, Jesus changes the affections of the heart. We no longer love people with our love, but with his love. So what the people in your life need most is not for you to love them with your best. It's not for them to get the best version of you. And if religion helps you accomplish that, then you'll attend church and Bible studies. That's not what the people in your life need most. What the people in your life need most is for you to love Jesus with your very best. That's what the people in your life need. And that's why it is our focus here at Heritage for Christians to love the people of Jesus with the love of Jesus until the day of Christ Jesus. This is why it is our focus that we must get into the lives of people who are not like us, those who don't value Jesus, those who don't value the Bible. They need to see what a real Christian is like to love people through the test of time, words and actions over time. They need to see how we love the church and we give priority to the church.
God started a work in Paul, and he started one in every single genuine Christian. God has worked regeneration, the new covenant into them. And we know Paul used to hate Jesus, right? We know this, right? A couple decades before this, Paul persecuted these brothers and sisters. He arrested them, and he was complicit in the murder of Christians. But now, Paul loves Jesus, and he loves the church, and we have to ask, how is it that a person could go from persecuting, hating Jesus, hating his people, do a 360, and then love Jesus and his people with all that he is? How does this happen? This necessitates and proves God's work of the new covenant, of regeneration. It's not that Paul is just trying to be the best version of himself. God has broken down who Paul was, Saul, and built him back up into Paul. Out of Paul's deep love for Jesus, Paul loves this church. The Christian life is not about deep hatred for the people in our lives. The critics have it wrong. The Christian life is loving Jesus first and loving people as an overflow of that. It's about loving Jesus with the primary affections and loving people out of the secondary affections, the overflow of that love. So here's my question. What if today you didn't shut your eyes and your ears and your mind and your heart off from today's preaching and you acknowledge that you don't love Jesus like this? You've never had the desire to love Jesus like this. I beg you, therefore, if this is you, to confess this to God. Confession simply means that you agree with what God is saying to you. That's all a confession is. God, you are right, and I am wrong. Change me. And this goes against the grain of American culture. We don't want people to tell us that we're wrong. We want to be independent and autonomous. And those values clash with what it means to be a Christian. It is natural for you to love Jesus above all. It is natural for you to love yourself, to love your people, to love your things above and over Jesus. But the hope today is that God is still doing this regenerating new covenant work until God has completed the number of sheep made up of all tribes and nations and tongues. God is still working this new covenant promise in this world. That means he can take your old, hard, dead heart and not just self-improve it, but make it new. When you acknowledge that you are that tower builder, that you set out to love your way, love people your way, love stuff your way, and it isn't working out, you searched the world and it did not fill you, then you can experience God as your creator, your redeemer, and your savior. Jesus finishes what he begins. And your love for Jesus will grow to primary and ultimate. And you will grow to love people more by actually loving them less. And you will look back at what God has built into your life with satisfaction the way that tower builder could have if he would have considered the cost.